Good morning. You guys can go have a seat. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, glad you made it here through the rain. Um, I can just say I am very thankful that we're meeting indoors. At this point, last year, we were meeting outside at Burnett Woods. Uh, some of you experienced that. So uh, even if you had to walk through the rain to get here this morning, at least you don't have to be sitting in it right now. So we can praise the Lord um, for that. So yeah, how many of you guys out there like to do group projects? <laughs> okay, I, I, that was what I was expecting. It was an extreme minority of hands uh, that went up. And uh, for whatever reason, group projects, I feel like, get a bad rap. Um, most people I talk to don't like to do them, and there's a couple reasons. First is that the work never seems to be distributed fairly, right? Um, at least it's, that's, that's how people at least always feel. Uh, it's weird to me that every group member is al always does more work than all the other group members, right? Isn't that strange? <laughs> like how everybody is an above average driver. Um, it's just to say, everyone always thinks that they're doing more than the other people. But I, I think the other reason that people don't like them is because you don't want to be judged by the work that somebody else did, right? Like one of your group members might do terrible work and you don't want them bringing your grade down because of their incompetence. Um, I had this happen to me a couple times at Bowling Green. Uh, I, there was one time I had a group in an education class and it was pretty funny as I look back on it, but um, the, the group presentation was just a complete and total train wreck. I don't have time to get into all of the, the details of what went wrong, um, but it basically turned into a stand-up comedy routine, which was funny, uh, but not exactly what was going on, <laughs> not what would have been good for the project. Um, I had another one in a different class. The professor, I, it seemed like what she cared more than anything, uh, even more than the content, she just seemed to care about how you present, and she told us a million times, do not put a ton of text on your slides and don't read from your PowerPoint. <laughs> and one of my group members got up there, and guess what she did? <laughs> Had paragraphs on her slides and read from her PowerPoint. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it kind of makes you cringe almost as you're a part of the group and you realize this person is up here doing this thing, uh, and, and that's going to affect you. You probably have some stories like this yourself. If you don't, you'll probably have them before you finish your time at college. Um, but we, we hate group projects, I think, at least most of us, because uh, we really value individual accomplishment. We live in a really, really individualistic society, and um, we, just, we hate this idea of being judged collectively as a group. We love the myth of the self-made person. Uh, but the reality is that we actually can't accomplish pretty much anything on our own. Um, if not for others, first off, you wouldn't have been born. Second, even if you were born, like if God just magically dropped us on the earth, uh, I guarantee you wouldn't make it more than a day or two. Um, babies aren't really able to do anything for themselves. I've been learning that more firsthand. Um, you, so you realize you're, you're completely and totally dependent on others for your survival. But it's not just when you're a baby. Right, like we forget how totally interconnected and interdependent we are as a society. Like just think about this, so it's not even that late in the day yet, and think of how many people have already helped you in some way this morning. And I'll bet that list is about a million times longer than what you're even thinking of in your head right now. For example, who made the clothes that you're wearing so that you could go out in society today? 
who built the building that we're standing in? You think about the people that did that or the, the people that uh, gathered all the raw materials that were necessary for that. Who's running the power plant to keep the, the lights on here? Who grew the food that you ate for breakfast this morning? Whatever, I, I could ask a million questions like this and you start to realize there are, are thousands of people at least probably that helped you just even here this morning. And for some reason, we have such individualistic mindsets, even though none of us really know how to live our lives without help from a lot of other people. Other people affect our lives in ways that are deeper than what I think that we oftentimes even realize. And sometimes this effect is for good, and sometimes it's for bad. But the reality of life, one way or the other, is that we are very, very interconnected. Now, I say all of this because today we're going to read a passage that shows how we are greatly affected by the actions of two different people in history. You know, each person is an individual that made a choice that they were responsible for, but that choice ended up affecting every single other person on the planet in some sort of significant way. And so this passage comes from the book of Romans, which is what we've been preaching through uh, throughout this semester. And uh, we've titled this series, The Power of the Gospel. And that's because in this book, uh, we see the good news about God's power to save us from our sin and transform us. That's been uh, very clearly laid out as Paul is uh, making this argument. Last week, I spoke simply about God's unconditional love for us. One of the most basic and simple truths of the Bible, but one of the most profound and life-changing things that you could ever grasp. We've seen that he has this, this love for us that's so great, it was a motivating factor behind why he saves us from sin. We saw that God loves us so much, and he demonstrated it by Jesus dying on the cross for us. And not only did Jesus die for us, but he did so while we were still sinners, right? Meaning that it wasn't our good behavior that convinced him to come and do that for us. And this is fantastic news, right? Like that's the best news that we could possibly have, that we have the almighty God of the universe that loves us and cares for us, and he loves us because he's good, not because we're good, which means that we can't screw that up. We can't fall out of that love. He has it for us just because he is good and wants to give it to us. Now, as good of news as this is, uh, that Jesus died for us to save us, it can bring some confusion, and we might ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus need to die in the first place, right? Like, I understand the concept of uh, loving someone enough to die for them, but what was it that really made that necessary in the first place, right? Like, if, we, if you actually have a problem and someone dies in order to save you and fix that problem, then they've demonstrated they love you, right? But if you don't have a problem, then somebody dying for you doesn't really show you anything other than maybe that that person's crazy, <laughs> right? Like, like imagine this, if you were in a burning building and somebody runs into that building to save you and dies in the process, you'd say, wow, that person like really cared about me. But if, you, if there was a burning building and you had already escaped from that and you're standing on the outside and there's a person that says, I love you so much, I'm gonna die for you, and they just run into the building, you'd say, that person doesn't love me, that person's crazy, Right? That's not actually demonstrating anything about their love. So what we see is that if, God's, if the Bible is telling us that God demonstrates his own love for us by Christ dying for us, then that implies that it must have been something that we actually needed. Like we were in a state where we actually needed to be saved. And we're going to be looking into that a little bit more this morning, uh, getting into this idea of how it is exactly that Jesus died for us and how it saves us. Uh, so with that being said, let's pray. And then uh, we're going to get into our main text. 
God, we love you, and uh, we just thank you that we get to be here today. I, I thank you for uh, Rachel and, and what she led us uh, in with, with praying through your scripture this morning, and just that attitude that we can be people that uh, rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. And God, we know that that's true because of the gospel. And so, Lord, as we um, are here this morning to, to worship you, and, and one of the ways that we want to do that is by worshiping you with our minds as we, we try to pay attention to your word and understand it. And God, I pray that in that you would work in our, our hearts as well, Lord, and stir up a greater love for you. God, we want you to be glorified this morning. I pray that you'd be with me as I work through uh, just bringing your word to everybody that's here. Let your spirit work powerfully, God, in the way that, uh, that you teach us this morning. So we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12. Um, I will warn you, this is probably one of the more kind of confusing or difficult passages that we'll have dealt with so far this semester. Um, so I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we'll kind of go back and work through it slowly. So here we are, Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all men sinned. Spread to all because all sinned. For sin indeed has in, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay. So as I said, this is probably one of the more difficult passages. If, if you found yourself kind of getting confused as I was reading through that, that's okay. I'm going to do the best I can to kind of go back and work through this uh, slowly. Now, um, uh, the, the sermon today, even because that might feel maybe a little bit more academic than it usually does, I'm okay with that. I hope you're okay with that. Uh, the reason that I'm willing to do that is because I want us to be a church that really, really loves God, first and foremost. And I think that if we're going to be a church that loves God well, we need to learn to love his word. 
because that is something that helps us know him, right? Like, I don't want to be the guy that just stands up here and gives you what you need to, to think, and then you go off and, and go about the rest of your week. What I'm really hoping to do in the way that I preach is actually I'm kind of hoping to disciple you in some way. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm hoping to give you stuff that's going to be helpful in understanding God's word. And I know that not all of you have the, the, the time or maybe the gifting to, to look through the scripture in the same way that I get the opportunity to. But in the way that I preach, I am still trying to help you guys learn how to read your Bible as well. That's why, why we preach the way we do here at H2O, that we open up the text and we just try and work through it together. Because if you learn how to do things like that, you're going to be able to feed yourself throughout the week. And as you spend time in the word yourself, God is going to grow you so much more than, than he can do even just through me once a week. Okay, so yes, there might be a little bit of an academic feel. Yes, we're going to have to work through some uh, maybe difficult portions of the passage, uh, but we can't learn how to apply a passage well until we can first understand what's actually going on in it, right? It's our first principle. We've got to understand what's going on in the passage before we can actually apply it. So I just want to warn you um, that that's going to be a little bit of what you're in for uh, this morning. Um, so with that being said, let's go back to verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Now, when Paul says, therefore, to start this, he means, uh, that, this means that he's building off of something that he had previously expressed, okay? He's continuing a thought. So the thought that's expressed right before this is the fact that God loves us and reconciled us to himself, meaning that he fixed our broken relationship with him through Jesus. So the therefore lets us know that Paul is expressing a thought that's connected to the fact that we are reconciled to God through Jesus, all right? Now, um, if Jesus reconciled us to God, this means that something had to separate us from him in the first place. And that is what Paul is talking about here in verse 12. That thing that separated us from God is sin. Now, the simplest way that I can define sin is any thought, attitude, or action that's contrary to God's commands. Sin is all too common amongst us, and it's been around for a very, 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 very long time. The text says that sin came into the world through one man. And this is referring back to the very first man, who was Adam. All right, and I want to show you this. So remember, sin is any thought, attitude, or action that's contrary to God's commands. Um, let's see the command that God gave Adam, and I want to show you the reaction that he had to that command. So we'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so uh, here we are in Genesis chapter 2. Things are going really, really well. Uh, God has created all of this awesome stuff. He's created man in his own image. He puts him in this garden. Uh, he gives him all this different stuff to be able to eat. There's no sin. Nothing is rebelled against God at this point. Uh, that, that's at least here in the garden. Um, Adam certainly hasn't uh, sinned against God. The animals haven't, nothing like that. Things get even better a little bit uh, later right after this. God creates woman right after this. Adam's really excited about that. Um, but things take a turn when they decide that they're going to disobey what God said. 
which is the first sin. This is where sin entered the world. So we go just a little bit further in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, so Satan is a liar. He comes in and tempts Eve and unfortunately, they listened to Satan rather than to God. God had given them a clear command that they were not to eat from this tree. But Satan comes and says, no, 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 you should eat from this tree. And so what do they do? They eat from the tree. What does that mean they did? They sin, right? Because sin is any thought, attitude, or action that's contrary to the commands of God. And so with this, they sin. And this passage tells us, uh, well, God warned us first, actually, that death would come into the world if they sin. He said, if you eat from this, you will surely die. This passage implies that there was actually no death before Adam and Eve sinned, all right? Sometimes I've had people ask me, hey, Grant, you know, uh, God told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate from the tree, and then they ate from the tree, and then they didn't die. Why was that? And I say, oh, really? Adam and Eve didn't die. Like, where are they? I'd like to meet them. <laughs> you, Adam and Eve aren't with us anymore. Adam and Eve did die. They, they didn't die immediately, yes, and that was by God's grace. We actually see that God killed an animal, gave them coverings of skins, but ultimately they would still die. Death has entered into the world. We are so accustomed to a world that has death that we just assume that Adam and Eve were going to die at some point, but the reality is, no, they weren't. Death is, is, a, is a product of sin, and it was only when that entered in the world that they eventually were set on the course to where they would die. And so this is the progression that we've seen so far is that God brought man into the world, man brought sin into the world, and sin brought death into the world. This is all easy enough to follow. But what's difficult is the last part of the verse. It says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, in one sense, you may say, Grant, that's not very confusing, right? Like we know that everybody sinned. We spent the first couple chapters talking about that. And our life experience shows that, right, too? What's interesting here is the grammar. It says that death spread to all men because all men sinned, right? Uh, it's in the past tense here. How is it that everyone sinned that, that death would spread to? There were only two people, and yeah, they both sinned, but all the rest of us die. Is this passage saying that we were guilty of that sin somehow? Why would Paul, men, why would Paul write this in the past tense? For now, I'm not going to talk about that. I'll circle back to that later. Uh, but I just want to point that out to you. Um, that, that there could be something deeper that's going on there. Uh, but for now, we can see that Adam screwed up and that his mistake affected not only himself, but everyone else that would follow him. Everyone else that would ever live, right? I don't know if you guys have ever made a bad mistake that affected a lot of other people that you felt bad about. Uh, this is about as bad as it gets. Adam screws this up big time. 
And so the next verse says this, as we continue on in Romans. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Okay, so Paul is telling us here, man, sin has been around for, for all this time, right? It, it was around even before the law. I mean, so when he talks about the law, that's in the Old Testament when God takes Moses and, and has him uh, bring all of the Israelites out of Egypt. They're out in the desert and God gives them this law, all these different commands that they're supposed to follow. Now, if sin is any thought, attitude, or action that's contrary to the commands of God, when we break that law, we would understand that we're in sin. But also, if you're reading this, you might be thinking, well, wait a second. If death comes as sin, and sin is when you break the commands of God, what about all those people between Adam and Moses? Like, they didn't have any commands of God that they were breaking. Like, they didn't even have the law. Right? And, and that's, that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, right? Sin was, in, was indeed... For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. But death still reigned. So why is it that these people were still dying, even though they didn't have an explicit command of what to do? The same way that Adam and Eve did, for example, where he specifically said, don't do this or you'll die. Once the law came, specific commands, don't do this. All these people in between, what, why are they being held accountable for this? Why are they uh, suffering death over their sin? Now, it's correct that there were no clear commands that they broke. So in that sense, they didn't sin like the transgression of Adam. That's what Paul talks about in this passage. However, just because their sin wasn't like his doesn't mean that they didn't sin, right? He says that sin was still in the world. Matter of fact, look at Genesis 6-5. This is after the time of Adam. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a pretty strong indictment against the people of that time, right? Uh, this is actually what led to the Great Flood. The famously wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, there in that time between Adam and Moses. So there's plenty of sin that was going around during this time, even though they didn't have a clear and explicit command the way that Adam did, or that later generations would after the law was given. However, God has still given us a conscience, and they had to violate this in order to live in sin. This concept of a conscience has actually already been spoken of in Romans chapter 2. I'll just refresh your memory on that. Romans 2, 14 to 15. Uh, for when Gentiles, those are people that are not Jewish. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Okay? So Paul is writing out, hey, there's all these people that even after the law came, they didn't have access to it. A lot of these Gentiles. But they had a conscience that was either, uh, that was telling them what was right or wrong. And some of them were naturally living in line with that, and some of them were not. And so even in this time between uh, Adam and Moses, it's not like people didn't have consciences. It's not like they didn't have some sort of natural understanding that God had put in their hearts about what was right or wrong. And they continued to rebel against that. So yeah, it wasn't exactly like Adam, but there were still a lot of similarities to it. And so Adam's sin had brought death in the world, and consequently, these people experienced that for their sin as well. In one sense, it was Adam's fault for bringing sin and death into the world in the first place, but in another sense, it was their own fault for sinning that they died. Now, 
it, it mentions in these verses that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. This means that there's one that would come later who would be similar to Adam in some way. Adam is kind of, they, they, they share a very important similarity, and we'll see that as we go on in this passage. So let's go back to Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Here we're seeing the similarities and differences between Adam and Jesus. And that Jesus is this, the, Adam was this type of the one who was to come, right? And that one who was to come is Jesus. And so we see here that the major similarity that Adam and Jesus share for these purposes is that they both took one action that affected all people. They made a choice, they did something, but everybody else was affected by the decision that they made. However, the things that they did were very different. And the results of those actions uh, were very different as well. So let's see these differences. First off, we see that their actions were very different, right? Adam's action is called the trespass. This means that he did something that was against God's will. Whereas Jesus' action is referred to as an act of righteousness. He did something that was in line with God's will. We see that the circumstances in which they committed these acts were very different as well. Adam committed his sin on behalf of the human race when things were actually really good. Like there, was, there were no uh, people that had sinned before him. He lived in the Garden of Eden. He had all his needs taken care of. Essentially, he had every reason not to sin. One trespass brought judgment. He was the first one to do that. But Jesus committed his acts of righteousness after people had committed many sins, right? People had been in rebellion against God for a long time. They had continually spat in his face. In other words, he seemed to have every reason not to die for us. The free gift followed many trespasses. And we see that the results of their actions were quite different as well. Adam's sin brought about condemnation and death. But Jesus' sacrifice brought about justification and life. At the heart of all this, remember that Paul is trying to help us see how it is that Jesus has reconciled us to God. Right? We've been brought back together with God because Jesus, our new representative, the, the, the second Adam, the one that came later, has given us this free gift of righteousness. So Adam, our first representative, sinned, messed everything up, and we walked in his footsteps and suffered from his choice. But what he says now is that, hey, Jesus has come, the second Adam, and, and he has come and, and made a different choice. And he invites us into life with him and that we can walk in his footsteps and experience the goodness from the choice that he made. Our first representative, Adam, gave us the very unwelcome inheritance of sin and death. What he did affected all of us, and there's no doubt that because of sin, 
We were people that were guilty before God. He gave us a pretty poor inheritance in a lot of ways. Now, at this point, I have to mention that there's some disagreement amongst Christians as to what exactly we inherited from Adam. All right? Some, uh, I, I, by the way, before I get into this, I actually see a lot of merit in both views. Um, I don't have a strong leaning one way or the other. I've actually gone back and forth as I've studied this. Um, but I'm going to share both views with you, okay? So, so one view is that all we inherited from Adam is a corrupt, sinful nature. Every Christian agrees that, that we inherited a corrupt, sinful nature. The question is just whether we inherited something more than that. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the, the natural state of man is sinful, right? This is actually contrary to a lot of popular belief, the idea that we're kind of born good and, and uh, pure and that we kind of corrupt over time in the world. No, rather the Bible actually shows us that, that we actually have a nature that's corrupted. Ephesians 2, 3 says this, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, we don't have to be taught to sin. It's kind of just in our nature that we find ourselves rebelling against God, indulging the flesh, doing all sorts of evil things. Paul was writing to Christians there, reminding them of what God had saved them from. The prophet Jeremiah made this observation about the human heart. He says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul would later say in this very letter to the Romans, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. As natural people, we see that we've inherited a corrupt nature that, that inclines us to sin and rebel against God. So when we come across passages that talk about how all of us have died in Adam, I'll give you some examples. Uh, many died through one man's trespass in verse 15. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Uh, verse 19 says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. If you believe that all we did was inherit a, a corrupt nature from Adam, then the interpretation would be that Adam's sin ushered in uh, th this, this corrupt nature that caused us to inevitably sin, walk in the same manner that he did, which ultimately brought about those consequences that it's talking about. All right? Now, there are some people that take this a little bit further, and they would say that not only did we inherit the corruption of Adam, the sinful nature, but that we even inherit the guilt itself from the very sin that he committed. Okay? This is the idea that you might have heard called original sin before. Um, this would mean that God sees us guilty uh, for, for a sin that we didn't even make a conscious decision to commit. We weren't even alive at the time that it happened. Now, of course, the, the major weakness with this argument is that it doesn't seem right to God, for God to count someone guilty for doing something that they had no choice in doing, right? Like most of us would say, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. However, there are a lot of Christians that hold this view, and there's some good reasons why. There's some merit to this argument. First, it gives us the most straightforward way possible to be able to read the text, right? So if you look at those verses 15, 18, and 19, where it talks about us uh, dying through the one trespass or the idea that we were made sinners through the one man's disobedience, you can read that in the most straightforward way possible, just saying, yeah, you actually became a sinner because of this, what he did. Uh, you don't have to take the extra interpretive step of saying that these things happened because of a sin nature, which then led to our own sin. 
the view of inherited guilt also makes more sense of that past tense in verse 12 that I alerted you to earlier, where he talks about, so death spread to all men because all sinned. If we sinned, you and me, even though we hadn't been born yet, in that time where Adam sinned there, then that would make sense why Paul wrote that in past tense. We were already guilty of that sin before we were even born. Now, one proponent of this view is, uh, there, there's many of them, but one guy is Everett Harrison. He, in his uh, commentary on Romans, he wrote this. That we could have sinned in Adam may seem strange and unnatural to the mind of Western man. Nevertheless, it is congenial to biblical teaching on the solidarity of mankind. When Adam sinned, the race sinned because the race was in him. To put it boldly, Adam was the race. What he did, his descendants, who were still in him, did also. This principle is utilized in Hebrews 7, 9 to 10. All right, I'm going to show you what Hebrews 7, 9 to 10 is. I'll warn you, it might make some of you uncomfortable. But um, says this, And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. All right. I don't have time to explain who all these characters are, uh, but basically just to give you a brief understanding, Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham. They never shared the planet at the, at the same time. At least Levi was not, by the time Levi was born, Abraham was already dead, right? Um, I'm not going to talk about who Melchizedek is, but for the purposes that, that's important for us here, the, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Levi was complicit in an action that Abraham took even though he wasn't born, right? He says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. What's his reasoning for that? Well, his reasoning is he did it because he was in the loins of Abraham. That's why I said some of you might be uncomfortable. I know that's a weird phrase, uh, but I'm just quoting the, the Bible. So the extension here would be uh, that we could be complicit in Adam's sin because we uh, were, to use this phrase, in the loins of Adam when his sin happened. Now, once again, obviously I know that there's the issue of inherited guilt seems really, really unfair. Why would God punish us for a sin that we had no say in committing? And to this, there's a few things that you could say. Uh, first off, if you were in Adam's shoes, you almost certainly would have done the same thing, right? We, of course, don't know that, but God knows that, so he can judge us righteously with the, the perfect knowledge that he has. But second, you also have plenty of sin that God can already actually judge you for. So whether or not you would have made the same decision, who knows? Um, but if, if God finds us guilty, at the very least, he, he can find us guilty for all the sin that we're actually uh, guilty of committing. But finally, the concept of imputation from a representative is seen in Christ. Okay, now, imputation, it's a theological term, uh, but it refers to assigning what belongs to one person onto another person. Okay, this is a concept that we actually see in the gospel very clearly. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This passage is teaching us imputation, right? It's saying that our sin was imputed onto Jesus. What we had done, what we were actually guilty of, was put onto another that was not actually guilty of that. Jesus bore that on the cross. And that in him we become the righteousness of God. That's teaching that the righteousness of Christ, the perfect and obedient life that he lived, was imputed to us. We were not perfect. We were not righteous. But that life of Jesus was transferred onto us. That's what we get with this idea of imputation. This is actually a pretty central idea to the gospel that this is something that can happen. 
The gospel teaches us that we're made righteous not by our own works, but by our faith in Christ. He is the one that did the work to save us. Right? This is the good news. That, that Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness. Now, if we're allowed to be righteous because of the work of someone else, is it possible that we could also be found guilty because of the work of someone else? I don't know. I'm leaving that open as, as a question. You don't have to believe in Adam's, uh, in it, that we inherit Adam's guilt in order to accept the fact that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, right? Like, you have to believe Christ's righteousness is imputed to us to believe the gospel. You don't have to believe that Adam's guilt is imputed to us to be a Christian. Um, as I said, there's room for disagreement about whether or not Adam's guilt's imputed to us. I only bring up the comparison because it helps draw an even clearer parallel between Adam and Jesus, which is what Paul is obviously doing in this passage in Romans 5. He's showing us how Adam did something that affected everybody and Jesus did something that affected everybody. Now, as I said, I know that all that probably seemed a lot of academic. I probably lost some of you by this point. Um, but I, I really felt like that was important and worthwhile for us to do as a church. I want you to be comfortable coming across these passages in your Bible and know how to deal with them rather than kind of just saying, huh, I don't really get that and moving on. Um, so every now and then as this stuff comes up, we're, we're going to work through these kinds of difficult passages. But our theology should always have some real-world applications, all right? So it's not just an academic exercise. Matter of fact, here you are at an academic institution, but why? Because ultimately you're trying to, to learn what you need to to go out and be successful in applying those skills in the real world. And so if we do a good job with our theology, that should be something that actually helps us to live lives that are obedient to Jesus. And so what I would apply from what we've talked about this morning, I have, a, I have four things for us. And the first is that we need to get real, okay? We need to be honest about the fact that we have a problem that we can't fix. Whether it's uh, inherited guilt and inherited corruption from Adam, or even if it's just inherited corruption, regardless, what we have seen is that our hearts are desperately sick and wicked. What we have seen is that we have a corrupt sin nature. We've seen things like in Romans 8, 8, where Paul says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We, we, we have no ability to do anything of spiritual value on ourselves. I'm not saying that a non-Christian can't do anything that's good in, in terms of society, but in terms of our actual ability to be righteous before God and to please him, we actually can't do that ourselves. John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, this is Jesus speaking, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We've got to be real about the limitations that we have. We need to understand that, that we are so desperately in need of a Savior, probably much more than we ever want to admit. And because of that, we need to respond. Right? Now, you could read Romans 5, and some people might think that it actually teaches universal salvation. Right? For example, you look at something like verse 18. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Paul wrote later in a different letter in 1 Corinthians, he said, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So if, if these were all we had, you might say, oh great, like there isn't actually a need for a response. We just naturally inherited what Adam gave us without doing anything, and we'll naturally inherit what Jesus gave us without doing anything. I don't think it's quite that simple. 
There's way too much in the Bible that shows us that we have to actually respond in faith to receive the life and justification that Christ offers. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a qualifier there. It's for those that believe in him. <coughs> Offers there, but you have to believe. Uh, Romans 10, we'll, we'll come across this later. Romans 10, verse 9 says, uh, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Once again, the offer is there, but we have to actually respond. We have to actually call on it. And so when a passage like Romans 5 is talking about all being affected by either Christ or Adam, I think that there's actually uh, an implication. It's implying that uh, this is a reality for all who identify with that representative, okay? Now, we naturally identify with Adam, even if his guilt isn't imputed to us, we naturally identify with him by our actions, that we follow in his footsteps. We're people that sin in much the same way that he did. So with that, we kind of are identified under his umbrella. Well, it, it makes sense that, that we therefore suffer in the same faith that he had. Now, in Christ, we see that the way that we identify with him is believing in him, calling on his name, confessing with our mouth and believing with our heart. And so we need to be people that respond to that and say, yes, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you to save me. Please come and do that. Third, we need to reflect our representative. Adam was our first representative of the human race, as the text said. He, he was the type of one that was to come. We now have a new representative available to us, and that's Jesus Christ, the eternal God who walked among us and took on flesh. His act of righteousness saved us, and we now have the opportunity to be represented by him instead of by Adam. And just as Adam gave us his sin nature, we now have the opportunity to be given the nature of Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he regenerates us and starts to change us from the inside out. And as we are people that say, no, I, I no longer identify with the first Adam, I identify with Jesus. That we should be people that actually reflect him, right? That we would no longer be people that reflect Adam as he walked in sin and rebellion against God, but instead reflect Jesus who walked in perfect righteousness and obedience in line with God's will. You see this in Colossians 1, 9 to 12. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. May we be people that walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Let's walk like the second Adam and not like the first. And finally, the last thing I would say here is that we need to rejoice. This is pretty much always going to be a point of application anytime we read the Bible. We need to be people that are super, super thankful, right? I love the tone that the prayer set beforehand, just this idea that we should be people that are always rejoicing. 
right? Like this comes across so much in the scriptures. Um, it can almost seem like white noise. We actually hear it so much or see it so much, but uh, the, the authors of scripture were so moved with thankfulness by what God has done in rescuing us. The only verses I didn't go back and look over from our main text today were the last two, verses 20 and 21. So we're going to do that right now. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that verse is not trying to tell us that the law was actually bad, okay? God didn't tell us what's good and right so that we would sin more. But I think when he gets at, what he's getting at where he says that the law came in to increase the trespass, it's saying um, it, it made us even more aware of our sin and gave us more opportunities to sin. But that, of course, wasn't the point of it. Uh, the point of it was ultimately to show us how much we need a Savior. And Paul will get at that more as we go on in Romans. Um, but what I want you to see in these last two verses is that where sin increased, grace increased even more. It abounded even more, right? And so no matter how bad we as human beings started to sin, no matter how many times God told us what to do and we rejected it, that was never powerful enough to be stronger than the grace that would still overcome that. And that is something worth rejoicing in. That's why you see that Paul is such a thankful person saying that sin is strong and it sucks, but God is so awesome that his grace is even greater. You know, I think of, uh, I don't know how many of you guys are baseball fans. Um, we're on the doorstep of the World Series now. It's coming up. And uh, I, I love baseball. <laughs> to me, when I, I look at this, these last couple of verses, I almost look at it like uh, my team's in extra innings. I'm the home team. And, uh, you know, it's a tie game, so the, the, the first person that can score and hold that for the end of the inning wins the game. That's how baseball would work once you get to extra innings. And it's called, almost like that away team that, that hits in the first part of the inning, they hit a home run, and you're thinking, man, this is over. Things just got worse. My team's down. But then Jesus comes up in the bottom of the inning for your team, and he hits a grand slam. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they hit a home run, but, but Jesus hit a grand slam. Like, his, his grace abounds even more then our sin increases. And so he walks off and does a bat flip and, and all is good, right? Like, man, praise God that his grace abounds even more, even when sin increases. And that's something that we should rejoice over. And so we're gonna do that right now as we enter uh, into a time of worship. The band can come back up as I pray. Um, God, we love you and uh, we rejoice in you. We thank you um, that your grace abounds. God, even where our sin increases, we, we thank you that we're not stuck in the sin of Adam. God, we know that, that we've had a bad inheritance from him on some level, at the very least, a, a corrupted nature. God, we know that as Jer Jeremiah spoke, our hearts are, are sick and Lord, we see that there's nothing good that dwells in our flesh. But God, you are so good. I thank you for Jesus, this, the, the one who was to come. Thank you that Adam was only a type of the one that was to come and that our new representative has made a different choice. That instead of the trespass, he 
committed the act of righteousness. And by it, we can be saved. God, I pray that um, you would help that to really resonate deeply in our hearts. That you'd help us to be people that are real about our weakness and our sin, our need for a Savior, and that that would lead us to response, God, that, Lord, if there's people here that haven't surrendered their lives to you and haven't understood the, the need they have for a Savior, I pray that would become clear to them today. And God, may we be people that reflect you, help us to walk in holiness and, and live a lot more like Jesus than like Adam. And God, may we be people that rejoice. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.